You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your host, Mark Holthy, Canadian immigration lawyer practicing in the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Well, today it's not necessarily so beautiful. There is a ton of snow piled up. The wind is howling. The drifts are everywhere. And it's just generally a mess today. But aside from that, when the snow disappears, when our lovely Chinook wind blows in and uh, melts all the snow, Lethbridge, where I am located, is a wonderful place to live. And while the snow remains on the ground in some of those other colder areas of our country where the Chinook wind does not blow, I just smile as I see the temperatures climb up to a, a balmy 15 sometimes during the winter. So um, there's not a lot for me to complain about. Well, folks, today in this episode, I'm going to shift a little bit and I'm going solo today. Many of you have probably listened to all of the past episodes. Uh, Subject to the very first few that I did, I have always had a guest. But today I've decided, you know what? I'm going to go solo. It's been a little bit of uh, a little bit of time since I released my last episode. I think I've told some of you that, uh, well, maybe all of you listeners, actually, I can't remember exactly what I say on the podcast or not, but I've got a few other little ventures that are going on um, that I'm experimenting with just to try and get uh, my practice as an immigration lawyer out there a little bit more and to uh, use some of the various social media channels to be able to better um business develop and and market uh, our practice here in Lethbridge and our services. Obviously, with a small little city like this that's uh, right around 100,000 people, it's not really a hotbed of immigration. (laughs) And so because of that, we have to reach out in creative ways to, uh, to pull clients in globally. So that's what we've been experimenting with over the last little bit. Well, the topic today is an interesting one, and uh, it's one that I've been thinking about a lot over the last little while, and um, I'll get into some of the main reasons why I decided to, to choose it, but navigating Canadian ports of entry can be one of the most frustrating, um, challenging, and rewarding parts of our practice as Canadian immigration lawyers. And for years, I have done a lot of cross-border work, Canada, U.S. So I've had lots of opportunities to interact with ports of entry. And um, I think most of us would confirm that sometimes it is quite the Jekyll and Hyde experience. And so I thought I would just share a little bit of insight with all of you guys today. Um, talk about my perspective, having worked on the border as an, as an immigration officer. And uh, just pull back the curtain a little bit and uh, talk about some of the things that really anyone who's sending a client down to the port of entry should take into consideration. So before I get to that, um, I'm going to have my little personal sharing moment once again here. And I just want to share some exciting news that um, 
that my family is experiencing right now. And uh, I know for most lawyers, it's not customary to share personal things, but this is my podcast and I can do whatever I want. And I did get some positive feedback from the last episode saying, hey, we actually find it interesting what you're doing, Mark. So I wanted to share some interesting news. So I think many of you know that I'm, I'm Mormon. So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And one of the things that us crazy Mormons do is we we send our kids away on these two-year missions um, all over the world uh, to serve and teach and do all these kinds of things. And uh, in fact, uh, part of the reason that I'm actually practicing immigration was the opportunity that I had to go and live in Portugal and serve my mission there for two years and learn Portuguese. So that kind of opened up my mind as soon as I started doing uh, uh, deciding that I was going to go to law school, immigration was right up there. How can I use this Portuguese? Now, in reality, there isn't too many opportunities here in Lethbridge, Alberta to use Portuguese, but on occasion, I do get to use it. Um, usually, it's Brazilian students that are coming to study uh, at one of our, our uh, post-secondary institutions here in Lethbridge. But anyways, the time has now uh, arrived in our family when my kids are actually getting old enough to go. And so both of them have expressed an interest, uh, much to their their father's um, uh, delight, I guess. Uh, I have a daughter who's 20 and a, and a son who's 18. And um, uh, my daughter, for the longest time, said, no, I don't want to, I, I don't think I'm going to serve a mission. I, I've got other things going on in my life. And, and uh, that was totally cool. But then in the fall, she decided, eh, I think I may just do that. So for the girls, they serve about a year and a half. And for the guys, they serve two years. And um, we submit their papers and uh, to, to Salt Lake City and, and they make a decision where they're going to go. So it could be anywhere in the world. So you can imagine waiting in the mailbox, checking it every day when you think it should be coming back. And, uh, and we finally got the results. So it worked out that they were both putting their papers in to go on missions at the same time. And uh, my daughter got her call first, and she's actually going to the U.S. to serve in, in Indianapolis, Indiana. And she's going to be reporting on March the 21st. And so we're, you know, we're super excited about that. And she's got her U.S. visa now, and she's all set. But my son just got his call recently to a country I had never heard of in my life. And you can imagine, a uh, Canadian immigration lawyer, more than likely I've had interaction with people in most of the countries in the world, but not this one. And the country, well, originally, uh, well, I should say his, his, his mission call said that he would be called to uh, the Trinidad mission, Trinidad, Tobago, um, serving in the Suriname region. And I thought, okay, well, I, I really don't know what that is. And then the mission call said he would be learning Dutch. And so I'm thinking, what <laughs> is the, why in the world would, would he be learning Dutch? Okay. Is it like there's some big, large Dutch population in, uh, in, you know, in Trinidad or one of these countries. And so after doing a bunch of research, we realized that Suriname actually was a former Dutch colony and Dutch is the primary language. In fact, it's the only country in the world outside of Holland where Dutch is the, is the first language. So we were super excited. We still are. He is going to be reporting on April the 4th. And um, him and Jessica, my, my eldest daughter, are going to be uh, missing each other in the Missionary Training Center down in Provo, Utah, by just a couple of weeks. So Jessica will be there spending some time, getting some initial instruction, and then she'll go to, out to her mission. And then just a few days after she leaves, my son will go in. And so um, this is all wonderful. It's just amazing. It's so cool. My son is so excited about it. 
But here's the immigration component, and this is why I'm sharing this story. So it's not just a random sharing. We received just yesterday, so April the 4th, okay, that's not too far out here. We're talking less than two months. I just received the instructions from uh, from the missionary uh, uh, travel department on what we need to get for him to get his visa to to basically serve as a missionary in Suriname. And listen to this, okay? So if you guys are complaining about the things you have to get for your clients when, you know, when we're applying for uh, applications for them to come to Canada. Okay, it starts off with two RCMP clearances. So two original ones. Okay, that's fine. We can use the commissioners here. I've done it tons of time for, you know, we can get the electronic fingerprints and, and get them sent off and get them back in just days. No problem. But we have to get six local police clearances. Why? I have no idea, but six at $65 a pop. Okay, fantastic. Then we have to get three original birth certificates. So we have to go and order uh, three new Alberta birth certificates. One has to be sent out to Ottawa to get apostled. And, uh, and then we have to um, get a driving transcript from him for him. Fortunately, he doesn't have too many tickets. And, uh, and then fill out the forms. And of course, the Suriname visa application will require a uh, triplicate. So we have to complete that form three times. And then um, because of the nature of his mission, and I never even said this, but uh, just, just to clarify, obviously, if, if those of you know who where Trinidad and Tobago is, well, Suriname is actually located um, just above Brazil in South America. So there's uh, French Guiana, um, uh, and then there's Guyana. And so more than likely, he's going to be spending some time in Guyana, G-U-Y-A-N-A, um, as well as uh, Suriname. And so um, we also had to fill out a visa application form for, for, for Guyana in duplicate. And so can you imagine? And they said, I need to get all of this to them by approximately March the 12th. So they were a little bit delayed getting us the visa instructions. So now I know what I put my own clients through when I say, look, um, here's all the stuff that you need to get right now. So drop everything in your life and go do it. So that is, uh, that is the entertaining um, experience me and my family are going through right now. And we know if we don't have everything all together, well, he's just going to be down in Provo. So we'll still be able to sort out, um, in Utah, we'll be able to sort out the remaining things, but wow, it gave me a whole new perspective because obviously I know nothing about the immigration process to Suriname, but, um, yeah, just very, very, uh, a very eye-opening experience. So I was very grateful that we didn't have to go through any of those hoops with my daughter, but, um, that's, that's our exciting news. So we're so excited for the experience it's going to give them. And, and as a family, we have two remaining kids at home. It's going to be strange because our family of six is probably going to be more similar to most of your families with two kids. And so we won't need to book two hotel rooms when we're traveling and it's going to be a whole lot cheaper to fly and all these kinds of things, at least while they're away. So I just wanted to share that with, with everyone and, um, yeah, exciting times for the Holthy family. All right. Let's jump into this topic. Why in the world do I want to talk about this now? Well, it's timely in the sense that I just received uh, an email and I spoke to a friend, a good friend who, who practices immigration as well. And they had recently had not a client, but someone come to them who had gone to a port of entry and had just the worst possible 
outcome that you could imagine. Now, I'm not going to mention the ports of entry. I'm not going to mention any specific details. Um, I'll get into some of the inner workings of ports of entry and the mindsets of border service officers in a little bit. But here's the situation. So a, a mom and her children, mom has a work permit, LMIA-based, and, uh, and for whatever reason, the kids' visitor records needed to be extended. So what do we do, right? You look at the processing times, and, and currently the processing times in, uh, uh, is, are about 95 days to file an application, um, uh, even online, for a visitor extension. So for whatever reason, they felt that they needed to go down to the port of entry versus filing through um, the online process, through Vegreville. And so they went down to the port of entry, and um, when they got there, they ran into an officer that either was having a very, very bad day, or just, I don't know. At any rate, um, it, the end result was uh, the mom um, had the officer investigate into her work permit and whether she was actually performing the duties associated with that work permit. And it resulted in the end in him making the determination that, oh, she must be working um, outside the confines of her work permit. And he pulled the work permit out of her passport. I'm not entirely sure uh, what what the officer was hoping to accomplish by doing that. It definitely doesn't invalidate the work permit. But anyways, he pulled the work permit out and gave her two options. So you can have me bar you from Canada for one to five years or, and I won't even address whether or not there's any foundation in law to that. But anyways, bar this individual for one to five years, or you can just voluntarily withdraw your desire to, uh, to, to come into Canada because I understand they did a loop around the pole, right? So she was re-entering Canada, even though she had a valid work permit and an LMIA and, uh, gave her approximately 10 days to report to the Vancouver, Vancouver airport as she returned back to her home country. So this situation all she wanted to do was go and extend the visitor, um, the visitor records, essentially, of her children who were in school, and everything just blew up. Now, I'm not going to get into any details about the decision that the officer made. Obviously, you know, the officer felt that there was grounds to do what he did, and, uh, and th- my place is not to kind of put myself in the position of the officer, um, even though I've been there, right? But it's, it's, this is the kind of thing that can happen completely outside of any realm of possibility that anyone could contemplate. Sure, maybe the officer says, no, I'm not going to do it, apply and land, uh, extending the visitor, um, the visitor records of these children. But to go into um, the actual role that the person is filling and question whether or not they're actually working in the occupation that they're working in, um, yeah, and there's a whole backstory to it, but uh, that's not really relevant to this discussion. But, but this is the world that we're dealing with with Canadian ports of entry. And as I indicated before, back in 2002, I worked as, a, as an officer on the border, an actual immigration officer, before the Canada Border Services Agency was created. And uh, I worked during the summer and uh, in between law school years, first and second uh, years of, of law school. And it was quite an interesting time because I was trade, trained in the old Immigration Act for a couple of weeks. And then I worked for a month and a half. And then IRPA came in um, right at the end of June 2002. And uh, it's, it's hard to think that it's been, wow, like uh, just about 16 years since that legislation has been in place. But anyways, that was the, oh, and, it, and it's been, it's been 16, just about 16 years since I worked on the border. Oh my goodness. I guess I am getting old. Anyways, 
uh, <laughs> back back on track here, folks. Um, so so during that time, it was interesting to see the transition. And uh, but I was an immigration officer. I wasn't customs. There was a clear distinction. It was Canada Customs and Revenue Agency, and then Citizenship and Immigration Canada. And I was an immigration officer. And uh, and so you know, so I thought, you know what? After seeing this experience, and of course, my my friend was horrified. Couldn't believe that anything like this could ever happen. And how could an officer do this? And you know what 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 you know what motivation would someone have to just ruin a family's lives? And and, you know, all of those are fair questions to ask. And I think everybody has to be open to, you know, critical criticism and all those kinds of things uh, with the decisions that are being made. And there are remedies and there are, you know, things that the family can do for sure. But at the end of the day, I thought, you know what, this is a great topic for a podcast. And uh, I would have loved to have had one of my friends, uh, border service officers, um, come on and, and, and talk on my podcast and give the officer's perspective. But the reality is... That will never happen. They, they just can't because they don't want to be seen as, as giving some kind of a uh, perspective um, on all of the Canada Border Service Agency that's just not correct. And, and so I've been unsuccessful to this point getting any uh, immigration officers or Border Service officers or Service Canada officers or any, any of the, the PNP officers to come and, uh, and talk on the podcast, but that's okay. So... I will do my very best here to provide both sides of the equation and, and to do it in a, in a fair manner. But, but navigating the ports of entry these days is not easy. And to describe it as somewhat of a Jekyll and Hyde experience is, I think it's entirely accurate. So what I wanted to do is um, just touch on some of the reasons why it is that way. And the, the very first one is the simple reality that there are very few, what I call legacy immigration officers still at the ports of entry. And uh, so what do, you, what do I mean by that? Well, legacy is officers that were solely focused on uh, administering the Immigration Act within Canada. So um, there was a time period before the creation of the Canada Border Service Agency when, like I said, immigration officers just dealt with immigration. They just dealt with the people. The customs officers just dealt with the search and seizure and enforcement and, you know, the whole customs excise side of things, importing of goods. Um, But there was a clear distinction between people and goods. And so in those days, immigration officers really knew their their trade. They understood the law. They understood immigration, you know, and there were varying degrees of, of, uh, of expertise, but but generally speaking, there was always someone, uh, a large group or contingent of officers at ports of entry that understood the immigration uh, laws in Canada. And, um, and then there was, you know, they didn't know anything about customs and, and at least limited amounts about customs, but it was their role to facilitate people. And I think that's a good way of describing it. It was more of a world of facilitation. Um, you know, they, they weren't focused on finding ways to keep people out. But after, you know, you think about this, 2002 is when I worked and that's when the new act came in. And then shortly after, I think 2003 or four, the Canada Border Service Agency was created largely to kind of mirror what was happening in the U.S. And after 9-11 and all of those things that, that caused a real shift in the need for border security, at least a more heightened, vigilant um, border presence. And so when I look at what the officers have to do now, they're wearing two hats. 
you know, one, when one moment they're facilitating the landing of a family in Canada and they've got that facilitation hat on. And then the very next person coming in, you know, has got some, some issue, you know, they have to go down and uh, the next shift. And I'm not sure if it's, I know they cycle through, but then, you know, the, the, there's another day they're working on the pill, the primary inspection line, and they're having to do searching and seizing and, and wear their enforcement minded hats. So it is not an easy job. And, uh, you know, and so uh, right off the bat, I want, you know, any, I know, and I know officers, um, listen to the podcast, um, I completely understand the difficult position that they're in. And so when they're trying to navigate both of these worlds um, and juggle all of these different legislative provisions and trying to stay on top of all the changes, um, it's just not possible. At least it's not possible to be knowledgeable in all areas. And it's like anything, you know, um, you, you can't be, you know, you, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, essentially. And uh, in fairness, that's just the way the job is. So when I think about officers right off the bat, I want to advise everybody to do everything you can to be patient and to understand that there are going to be varying levels of expertise within the ranks of officers. And, um, and you have to get to know them. You have to get to know the ports of entry. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But your job is to make their job as easy as possible. And... Uh, We'll address that. But that's, that's right off the bat. The first thing is that there are fewer and fewer legacy immigration officers that were trained in immigration and that have extensive experience in immigration. And uh, you think about it, generally speaking, the larger ports of entry are where those immigration officers are, are found. And uh, some of the smaller ones, yes, there will be some legacy officers. But generally speaking, you know, your major airports into Canada and the major uh, highways into Canada are where these officers will be. And uh, yeah, so just keep that into mind. All right. The second reason I think the borders are a little bit more challenging and kind of Jekyll and Heidi um, is as a result of our current economy. And many of you who've been practicing for, for a long time remember the booming days, you know, the you know, when anywhere from about 2004 through till 2009, those that stretch of five years or so, where, um, you know, the country, generally speaking, was doing very well. And especially my province of Alberta here, you know, with unemployment rates of less than 3%, um, the government, which is such a strange world when I think about it now, Service Canada in those days, um, HRSD or whatever they wanted to call themselves back then, and then HRSDC, and then ESDC and all these acronyms as it morphed through all these changes, but uh, you know, the names have changed, but in those early days, at least of my practice, um, it's, it's quite amazing to, to remember that they were actually helping employers to fill out the forms. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, making a mistake and then being crucified and your application is rejected. If you made a mistake, they would go out of their way to help you complete the form and perfect it. So they actually helped employers to fill in the forms because for all intents and purposes in Alberta in those days, there was full employment. So it was a pretty easy world to practice as an immigration lawyer. And that was also the time when all these, you know, all the, every consultant and agent and recruiter and everything was, was jumping on board and trying to take advantage of this big boom. But that's not the case now. And, uh, and so there's been this, this protectionist attitude that has grown up in the ports of entry. And, uh, and it makes sense, you know, if you, okay, I'll give you an example. So 
as a as a as a business immigration lawyer, I do a lot of work with LMIA exempt work permits in all their forms: intercompany transfers, NAFTA. Uh, enough to professionals, um, reciprocal employment, significant benefit, you know, all of these different kinds of work permits that are um, basically you, by and large, depending on where the person's coming from, you, you can adjudicate directly at a port of entry. And, uh, you know, so when it comes to this world of, of non LMIA based work permits, facing a border officer sometimes can be challenging. And I think in particular, if of you know the oil and gas industry, for instance, or maybe you've got a geologist or an engineer or someone like that who's coming in from the U.S. under NAFTA to work on a project in Canada, and the officer adjudicating that work permit knows three friends that have been laid off by you know by one of these large oil companies who don't have a job right now, and they're here. They have a, an American coming up to 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 work in a position. Um, you know, that, that, uh, they would have rather had their, their friends work. And so you can see the, the difficulty. And so you've got this operating in the, you know, in the back of the mind of an officer and it's not easy. And, uh, NAFTA says, this is what a person needs to have in order to come in a job offer and credentials and U S citizenship or, or Mexican citizenship, generally speaking. And based on that job offer and, and their credentials, it's, it's a pretty straightforward process, but within that process, there still is a lot of discretion amongst the officers. And so they have the ability to determine what's good enough and what isn't good enough. And, um, and so that plays a significant role in the adjudication of work permits at these ports of entry or in the adjudication of any temporary application at a port of entry. So understand that at least right now, the situation in Canada, the downturn in the economy is, is, has a direct impact on the protectionist attitude of the officers. And um, when you think about uh, officers in general, I worked on the land crossing, but the airports, uh, ports of entry, you, you've got two ways of coming in. And depending upon the, the city that you're going to or the land crossing you're going through, you're going to face a different culture. And every port of entry has a different culture and you have to understand what it is. You have to learn it. You have to, if you don't know, then you ask around and you get people's experiences. You know, to some extent, it would be interesting to, to set up something like TripAdvisor for port of entries where people going through can post their experience working, you know, going through that port of entry. I, I, I thought about that for years. I thought that would be quite, uh, quite an interesting app to set up a, a trip advisor for ports of entry to Canada. But um, at this stage, I'm not quite aware of anything that exists like that. So you rely on anecdotal experiences, um, you know, stories from your colleagues and recent experiences of your own clients going through ports of entry to get a feel for what they, you know, how they are, how facilitative they are. And, uh, and there's a variety of, uh, of, you know, different positions that, that some ports of entry take on various work permit applications. And I think anyone who's practicing business immigration knows that in Alberta, you know, the concept of specialized knowledge tends to be a little bit more, um, I guess, uh, boy, what's the best way of describing it? Let's just say the standard that the officers expect a person to reach or meet is a lot higher now, I'm not saying rocket scientist level, but, you know, what they consider to be specialized knowledge and, and you know, at an advanced level of proprietary knowledge that an, uh, a foreign worker needs coming in under that intercompany transfer provision, 
um, that that test to meet may be a lot higher in Alberta than some other places. And so you start to learn these cultures. And, um, and the reality is when you're bringing people in, um, you will have your worker go to a port of entry that is uh, going to give them the, the best chance of success. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's you know, the, the discretion is built into the officers for a reason. And uh, people can choose wherever they want to enter into Canada. And so you start to learn advantages and, and disadvantages to each. And so it, that's, that's one of the things that I definitely want uh, people to understand is that there's a cultural shift that exists from port to port and also amongst the officers. So I'll share a little bit of experience with, you know, having worked on the border. So when I worked on the border, there was, you know, there were three kinds of officers. And in fact, um, you know, I could, I could probably say that, you know, when I was trained, I worked directly with about three or four officers who, who, um, who kind of showed me the ropes and taught me how to interview clients and, uh, and basically administer the Immigration Act at that time and, and IRPA in its early stages. And it was actually quite interesting because with IRPA coming in, no one really understood <laughs> exactly uh, how, how the law was to be fully applied and, and, you know, policy was being created on the fly. But uh, there was a, a, a clear distinction and I could, you know, there, there were officers, um, you know, three categories. So there was the, the more enforcement kind of, I don't know, bad cop, I guess, if you will, who, who saw every person as, as, as you know, as a cheat or a liar or a sneak or someone who was looking to, you know, to, to pull a fast one on the officers and, and just get a, some immigration status that they weren't entitled to. So that protectionist, high level protectionist, then you had the more facilitative person who genuinely wanted be, to be there to help people with their applications and, you know, and, um, and, and be facilitative. And then you had the middle ground person who was just kind of, you know, just middle ground, wasn't really facilitative, but if they saw someone who was, you know, who had some questionable elements to their application, they had no problems raking them over the coals. So those three kinds of officers are, are, are what I trained under. And I'll be honest, if a person came to the port of entry with, you know, any type of an application, um, whether or not that entry got approved well, it was affected directly by which officer happened to be behind the counter when they came up. And so, and that's the discretion that exists. So there is a real volatile nature to these ports of entry. And, uh, and so it's, it's super, super important for everybody to understand that um, you have to be aware of these things. And if you are not, you could be subjecting your client to, well, let's just say a very, very bad experience. And uh, I also want to point out that in some cases, um, you know, sending a client to some ports of entry in Canada, I would almost borderline consider negligent practice. And so it pays to, to take the time to try to understand and, and to figure out the culture of these ports of entry before you subject your clients to these decisions. Um, all right. So the last little piece of what I wanted to share with you guys today is just some practical tips and some things to consider before sending your client down. So we talked already about why we send our clients. Actually, I'm not sure if we did talk about that in any, any significant depth. I'm not sure if I addressed it, but why do we send people down to the ports of entry? Well, take the example of the family. Why? Because they didn't want to wait 95 days to have their children's visitor records uh, renewed. 
And uh, for work permits right now, if you file online, it's about 37 days, which, you know, in some cases, if you're, say, in Ontario or BC or whatever, and your, your, your health coverage is being affected and or your driver's license has expired because you've, you know, you're, you're nearing um, the, the stage in which you're going to be out of status or maybe you actually have fallen out of status and now you're facing the, the reality that you have to restore your status, well, it's a lot faster to go down to the border because you're getting a quick adjudication of your application. It's faster processing. It's instant. But (laughs) always remember, folks, you may just not like the decision that you get. So you might get a quick decision, you bet. And that's a factor that people are always asking, oh, how, how quick is the processing times? Is it faster to go to the port of entry? Well, in every single case, it's faster. But trust me, you may, na- you may not want the decision that you ultimately get. And uh, there's nothing worse than getting an allowed to leave and a deferral of, uh, of examination and, and told to report to an airport uh, as you're packing your bags and, you know, singing happy trails um, back to your home country, all because you chose to go down to the port of entry. So that's the first thing. Always, always remember that A fast decision may not be the kind of decision that you're looking for. Next, and I address this at length and I'll skip through it, but understand the culture, folks. You know, know where you're sending. At some times, you may even want to consider um, contacting the port of entry before you send your client down just to, you know, to to notify them to maybe get a, a supervisor on the line. And if it's a difficult situation, just to say, hey, here's what we're dealing with. Just wanted to get your take on it. Now, trust me, when I started practice, I could do this all the time. Now it's not so easy. And obviously, any anything that a supervisor tells you or an officer that you speak with is not binding on any other officer. So you could you could just happen to get the facilitative officer on the line who says, yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, send your client down. I think it should be fine. And then they do a loop around the pole and they get, uh, yeah, they get Mr. Enforcement or Mrs. or Ms. Enforcement. And so, and the result is refusal and um, ATL, deferral of examination and pack your bags, uh, you're leaving in 10 days. So it doesn't hurt to, to try to make that uh, initial contact with the port of entry in cases where you have any concerns about your particular client. Okay, next piece of advice, which is massively important. You must make sure that your client is fully compliant with all of the conditions of their temporary stay. And, you know, and what do I mean by that is, okay, well, did they have a period of three or four months where they were visitors in Canada before they got their first LMIA-based work permit? So I see this all the time. Someone will come as a visitor, they'll hang around for two, three, four months, they've got a job offer, the company needs to obtain a labor market impact assessment, and then they're stuck in limbo waiting for three or four months. Then they get their LMIA, so then they say, hey, I'm going to go do a loop around the pole. First work permit has to be applied outside of Canada. Down I go. And then they get, uh, well, a difficult port of entry. And what does the officer do? Right off the bat, the officer thinks, hmm, this person's been in Canada for four months. Man, if I was to go to a different country and holiday for four months, how much is that going to cost me? So they ask the person, Okay, well, what proof of funds do you have? How did you support yourself while you were in Canada waiting for your work permit? Your client better be prepared to answer how that happened. Another situation 
in terms of, uh, and they're, they're looking for illegal work and understand they can, they can pull the phone, they can check text messages, they can, uh, they can search through everything that, 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 that client has with them. And, uh, you understand when it comes to, to working, um, sometimes employers will say, Hey, let's do some pre-employment training. Uh-uh. Avoid that at all costs. But anyways, the officer will look to these things. They'll say, how did you support yourself? Are you sure you weren't working under the table? And I've had officers in the past say, come on, Mark, give me a break. You know, they've been working illegally, right? They've been here how long? So there's almost a presumption that you've been working illegally. If you've been in Canada as a visitor for a number of months before you ultimately apply for your work permit down at the port of entry. So make sure that your clients are fully prepared to demonstrate their compliance. And so they've got their bank statements. They've got letters from whatever friend that they've been staying with, their family member, showing that they didn't need to have thousands and thousands of dollars to to pay for hotel rooms while they were waiting for their work permit to come through. Now, I'm being a little facetious there, but that's that's the expectation. And so, you know, you look at the situation with that family that went down there and how everything blew up. And, uh, you know, they, the officer has the ability to question everything, even the very nature of an LMIA-based work permit. One tip I will give you guys, if you have a situation where, which happens a lot to us, you've got a, a foreign national um, who's been working in Canada, had to get a new LMIA, the employer drugged their feet, the decision hasn't come back yet, the person has applied for their work permit before the LMIA comes back to benefit from implied status and then their work permit runs out because the LMIA is, or I should say their, um, the work permit application that they've submitted gets refused because the LMIA has not come through fast enough and then they completely fall out of status. At that stage, yes, you can restore status. You have 90 days to do it. But if you go down to a port of entry when that person is in that implied status stage, they are going to expect almost instantly that the person is kept working. And that's at least the ports of entry, the more difficult ones. And that's who I'm talking to. I'm not talking about the facilitative ones where there's no issues, but the more difficult ones, they will assume, okay, you kept working, you're working illegally. You got the work permit refusal and, you know, and now it's uh, one month after that time period, you're telling me you just stopped working? Well, you better be able to prove it. So one of the best strategies at least um, like there isn't, you, you can't prove with a hundred percent certainty, uh, or provide evidence to demonstrate, you know, with a hundred percent degree of, 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 um, of force, I guess, if you will, to an officer. But one good strategy is us counsel to send an email to your client and say, as we discussed today, it is, uh, my understanding and the counsel that I gave you that you have stopped working. That's great. And then you get an email from the employer to the employee and to you confirming, yes, so-and-so, yes, we've got you on an unpaid leave till you get your work permit back. And um, we confirm that you're no longer working. And as soon as your work permit comes in, then we'll bring you back. And so do that as, as, um, as contemporaneously as possible um, or as soon after that work permit refusal letter you get as possible. And then that's one way to protect your client when they're going down in those circumstances to, um, you know, if they don't want to wait 37 more days to restore status online, they can uh, go through the process of, uh, of having at least a little bit more security um, visiting the port of entry. So that's, that's one of the tips of the day. And then finally, it kind of flows into this last one, ensure that your client is fully prepared. And I mean fully 
Airports flying into Canada, okay. There's often when an airport is adjudicating a work permit, they don't have the same level of time that a border officer has. And so when you are at a, at a land crossing, I should say. And so whenever you're sending someone down to the border, and I'm really talking a lot about the land crossings right now, make sure that they are fully prepared to answer all questions, that they have all of the documents that they need to, to make that border service officer's job easy. It's really difficult, folks, to know what one port of entry wants over another. I've had experiences where um, I've sent people down with LMIAs to apply for work permits, and an officer said, I want to see the original contract, the original folks, or I want to see the original degree or diploma, and they have the right to ask for whatever they want. Now, I'm not saying that every time you send your clients to the ports of entry, they need originals of everything. That's not the case. But the more difficult ports of entry, you may need to, and that's where the experience comes from. So make sure you've got everything, proof of funds, bank account showing that they you know, had funds to support themselves through any period of unemployment. Um, make sure that they've got the work experience letters, right? Showing that they've got the qualifications to work in this occupation. And I keep coming back to this family. You know, she wasn't expecting to be, have her work permit re-adjudicated there on the spot. And, uh, and so she didn't have anything with her, obviously. Um, but you know, experience letters, educational documents. And like I said, even originals, uh, may be needed at, at, at some ports of entry, which obviously, yes, that that's completely crazy, <laughs> but it, it happens. So that's just, you know, my views, I guess. And yes, this is just Mark Holthy's experience and, and, uh, everybody else will have different perspectives on the borders and every border is different. Every officer is different. And I'll be honest, I actually like it. I like the fact that officers have discretion. And in some cases, I've seen them do some pretty amazing things to help people. Um, I had a situation where a couple had applied for their spousal um, sponsorship and uh, included the open work permit with the application. The spouse had been managing, in this case, it was a tanning salon that the husband had purchased because she had prior experience in that area and it made perfect sense. So she came in on an open work permit and uh, through one of the international experience uh, classes and she had that open work permit and then they submitted their application, included an open work permit with their spousal sponsorship from within Canada and she benefited from implied status. Until the whole thing got returned because they didn't include the right marriage certificate. So they didn't include the official civil marriage certificate from the province. And so she was unable to work. The husband had another job. She was the primary manager of the tanning salon and they'd invested a lot of money into it. Well, you can imagine sitting around for another four months, they would have had to hire someone else to manage it. And the business was kind of breaking even as it was with her working. So what happened? We prepared a C-10 application, significant benefit, made the pitch. And you can imagine the manager of a tanning salon uh, in small small town Lethbridge, um, we, we made the pitch and um, it could have gone any direction. I think there were a ton of arguments why, you know, the, there was other Canadian employees, part-timers and other, and, and other ones that were relying on this business and they would have lost their jobs. And, uh, you know, the, not to mention the reality is, you know, she was a spouse of a Canadian citizen and, and, uh, you know, there was no harm. There was no damage being caused by her, you know, continuing to, to work. 
but we made the pitch for a C10 work permit and, and it was approved. And, um, you know, we happened to get an officer who was willing to think outside the box and, and, um, and be facilitative in the circumstances, but he didn't have to do that. That was entirely his discretion. And there's lots of stories like that all over of just amazing officers who, 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 you know, went out of their way to facilitate and help people. I think sometimes in our ranks as immigration lawyers, we spend all of our time talking about the horror stories and the bad experiences and the negative aspects of sending clients to the ports of entry. And yes, it is an extremely volatile experience. And, uh, you know, that quick decision, you just never know at times what you're going to, you know, what's going to happen. And if you're like me, when I've got people traveling, I'm always kind of sitting on pins and needles a little bit while I'm waiting to get that confirmation that all went through okay. So keep that in mind. I hope that this uh, solo version of the Canadian Immigration Podcast was somewhat helpful. Um, it was a lot of fun for me, uh, even thinking and preparing about it a little bit. Um, I know that there are a, a, just a hundred different directions and aspects of this process that I could have covered, but those are just some of my thoughts and I hope, I hope that you, uh, you enjoyed it today. All right. Well, as always uh, with these podcasts, I want to express appreciation for all of you guys sticking it out. And even though they're so sporadic, these podcasts, um, I actually, my, uh, coming up here, my next episode is going to be an interview with a translator company. So I've been trying to pull in a few different, um, other elements to our practice, um, to talk about, uh, you know, just, you know, some of these other ancillary um, third parties that we have to interact with. I've been trying to get Wes to come on, but unfortunately, no one from Wes, uh, the World Education Services for Language Assessments has, has gotten back to me yet. So maybe I'll just kick them loose and go to one of the other ECAs. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, those kinds of topics I'm, I'm looking to cover. But if you have a topic that you think would be would be interested interesting. And if you would like to join me as a guest on the podcast, don't hesitate to reach out to me and uh, I would be more than happy to facilitate you. Um, the strength of the podcast comes from all of you, not me, obviously. And so, um, I love being there. I love interviewing, um, just super knowledgeable, experienced guests and, uh, and just sharing helpful information to make all of our practices that much better. All right. Uh, don't forget that this is also on iTunes. So go over there and, uh, and leave a review. I love those. It helps to elevate the, um, the awareness of the existence of this podcast. And, uh, I look forward to seeing all of you guys that are out there uh, or will be in Ottawa attending our national Canadian bar association, uh, immigration conference. Um, it's going to be awesome. I have the absolute pleasure of chairing a panel on GCMS, ATIPS, that whole world with, um, you guessed it, Richard Kurland, the guru of all gurus for access to information. So uh, it's uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, don't hesitate to reach out to me and say hi. And if you've got ideas, like I said, for the podcast, yeah, come on and join me. It would be a lot of fun. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Um, as you and I navigate this crazy world of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. Oh, Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil.
from the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I am your guy for info that's up to date. Help with your phone. Yeah.